Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O C-O. Hi, this is Steve. This week, we are going back to 1958 and one of the most important, controversial, and endlessly fascinating films in the history of cinema. It also happens to be one of our all-time favorites. We are talking about Orson Welles' classic noir thriller, Touch of Evil. It stars Charlton Heston, Janet Leigh, and Orson Welles himself as the dangerous and disturbing Hank Quinlan. Now, this is a great film in every sense of the word. And, as is often true with Orson's movies, the story behind Touch of Evil is almost as interesting as the film itself. You see, this film was taken out of Orson's hands, and the 80-page memo he wrote on how to fix it was ignored by the studio. It wasn't until the mid-90s, a decade after Orson's death, that an attempt was made to cut the film as he intended. One of the greatest editors of all time, Walter Murch, was hired to recut the film, and the result is the far superior reconstructed director's cut. Now, you can rent Touch of Evil on YouTube and buy it on iTunes, but the versions there do not seem to be the director's cut. There is, however, a fantastic Blu-ray, which contains all three versions of the film, as well as documentaries and commentary tracks. If you're a serious film fan and haven't seen this one, well, it's time to remedy that situation. Touch of Evil contains great performances, groundbreaking camera work, fantastic music, and a story that is as thrilling and tense as it is complex. That's the groundbreaking touch of evil next time on The Cinephiles. We'll see you then. Hi, and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a classic film and explore its history, themes, filmmaking, and the influence it has on filmmakers today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hi, I'm John Roca. I'm an actor and VO actor here in California. Uh, I also host a bunch of other podcasts and YouTube shows. So today's a big one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For both of us. Yeah, oh yeah. As huge Orson Welles fans. Yeah, you know? I think I think you and I both, uh, as preparing for this, had this thought of how are we going to keep this to under an hour? Yeah. And it, I'm telling you right now, it might not happen because today's <laughs> film is Touch of Evil. Great film. Uh, Charlton Heston, Janet Lee. Dennis Weaver, uh, Mercedes McCambridge, so many people in this film, obviously Orson Welles. Uh, and so it's just, it, to me, I was very excited when this came up as a possible option for us. And I haven't seen the film in a while, so it was great to revisit it again for I, this. I, yeah, I think what's, what's going to be tough for us is that, at least for me, and I think the same is true for you, is yeah. that Orson Welles, to me, is the great looming figure of Hollywood history. Absolutely. He is the most fascinating, contradictory, enigmatic, frustrating, brilliant, sad mm -hmm. character in the history of American film. Well, there have been so many books written about him by so many established film historians and film critics, and some people don't like to have them have him simplified. Uh, but I think, to me, 
he has always been a classic Shakespearean character come to life. Like he, all his foibles, all his amazing heights and all his incredible lows that are mostly brought about by self-destructive behavior or an inability to function within the social norms of what was going on in Hollywood at the time, uh, you know, combined with his incredible genius. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. He's one of the most fascinating figures in film history and his films are really personal odysseys for him and you see that and this is a perfect example of that again oh it's absolutely true and 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 i think what's hard is the more you read about him and the more you study him yeah the harder it gets to separate the legend from the man yeah you know yeah. He, he, he literally is a mythic figure mm-hmm. and if you read like for instance if you read this is orson wells the great uh, bogdanovich set of interviews with orson yeah and then you read other stuff. You go, oh, that that unbelievably great story he told about his painting on the back of a donkey cart through Europe, <laughs> or that that might not be true. Yeah, we we actually, and it's really hard to figure out mm-hmm. what is true and what isn't. What I do know is that I love the Orson stories so much yeah. that I want to believe in them. Yeah, and I think he knew that too. If one of the things he was consistent about in his life, if nothing else, was that he loved to tell stories that um, embellished the legend of him. He really invested and leaned into the idea of Orson Welles being this legendary character all the way to the end. No matter how broke he was and no matter how rich he was, he consistently created stories whether you that you couldn't technically prove were incorrect right. about his life, which makes him fascinating and, and a real, a consummate storyteller in every facet of his life. Well, and, and, uh, a magician. Yes. One of the, one of the things yes. to know about him is he's a master of sleight of hand yeah. and his ways of, uh, in fact, he did magic shows to raise money for the troops during mm-hmm. World War II to raise, uh, war bonds. Yeah. And, uh, the way he tells stories of his life, it's yeah. always a little sleight of hand. Yeah. You're always a little bit, wait, how is, is that right? So, so I, I'll, give, I'll put a little Surgeon General's warning on the beginning. For those of you who think you might be interested in Orson Welles, yeah. it can become addictive. Yes. Once you start digging, and, and I'm sure we're going we're gonna to tell some Orson Welles story, we'll tr- mm. stories in the course of this podcast. Sure. Try to keep them to a minimum because <laughs> yeah. we, we gotta, but we're going we're gonna to come back to Orson again and again, I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, so this film, Touch of Evil, how did you first come to this film? Uh, I remember well, because I'd seen Citizen Kane. It had been my favorite film when I was a child. I had, later, as I got older, I started. Like six, seven? Like, yeah, sure. Yeah, so, I, I love Citizen Kane. I guess that's fair. I, was, I feel that the cinematography <laughs> is groundbreaking. <laughs> I like that the, uh, the camera goes through the window window down into Susan. <laughs> no, I was uh, 16 or 17, uh, homesick from high school. And I remember, and I was just becoming my love of films since I was like, you know, right in that time. And I saw, I rented Citizen Kane, fell in love with it for so many reasons. Rewatched it three or four times while I had it. Because back then, remember, you could only rent it for 24 hours a movie right. or for two days. Uh, and from that, as I got older, I started to slowly discover his stuff. And Touch of Evil, I actually saw in the theater. I threw oh, wow. some revival uh, theater, I think think in Virginia uh, and they were shop they were just doing older movies and I saw it in a the theater and it, it's fascinating Citizen Kane is so far above what had been happening at the time but when you watch his other films you have to really accept the style of Orson Welles the law lo- the uh, close-ups the above the below the shots the shots from below the wide angle shots the uh, unsettling angled shots all those things and I think where in other movies it was a bit distracting at times I think it's perfectly used throughout this entire film in Touch of Evil. And I fell in love with it. And to me, it's my second favorite film behind Citizen Kane of Wells. 
It's my second favorite. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's his most complete uh, film. Uh, So for me, it's very similar. So probably 17 or 18 years old, I'd seen Citizen Kane. And that's what started my going from a guy who loved movies to, oh, I want to study. Yeah. You know, I want to go back. I want to see where these things came from. I'd heard about Touch of Evil, rented it when I was in college Mm. and watched it and was very affected. Yeah. And very confused. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, you get to the end of the film, and we're going to get into this when we talk about the history of the film. Yeah. You get to the end of the, this earlier version, and it the 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 power of Orson Welles's filmmaking and the emotion and the tension and the uncomfortableness of Touch of Evil, hundred percent comes through. Yeah, but the story made no sense. Like, it was really hard to understand. It's convoluted what was going the first on. time you watch it. Yeah, and so so then and so this is probably late eighties, early nineties, and then in the mid nineties, I'm in film school, and yeah. they teach Touch of Evil. We right. had a great professor, Bruce Block, who who has a wonderful book on visual style, and he keeps going back and back to Touch of Evil over and over again, and that's where I first heard that this wasn't Orson's version of the film yeah um is that and so a little bit of history uh again we'll try to avoid too many orson Welles stories but he had become very much persona non grata in hollywood yeah. Yeah. and uh, he makes citizen kane and uh then has a troubled production with ambersons makes yeah. a couple of more hollywood films and then basically he got, he went into what we would call hollywood jail yeah is that no one would let him direct a film and he gets banished to Europe. He always could find work as an actor, right. but could never find work as a director. And it's now it's 1957, I think. Yes. They come out, uh, they go to Charlton Heston about acting in this film called Badge of Evil, which is a crime noir story. And this is really, it's below Heston's weight. Yeah. Yeah. Heston's doing Ben-Hur. He's doing the Ten Commandments. He's doing yeah. the big, huge, and this is a B picture. Yeah. But they go to Heston, and Heston goes, well, who do you have to direct? And they say, well, we have Orson Welles to play the heavy. Uh, and the heavy, by the way, is an old-fashioned term for a bad guy, Yeah, not, not just <laughs> to be the fat guy. Not the size, yeah. <laughs> um, and Charlton Heston says, well, why don't you talk to Orson to direct? He's a pretty good director. Right. And they go, well, if we can get Chuck Heston, sure. So Orson gets called back out of Hollywood jail to direct this film. Yeah. Directs it. We're going to tell some stories about the filmmaking. But then for whatever reason, and again, this is the frustrating, sad, difficult thing about Orson Welles. Yes. He's around for the first assembly, and then he skips town. Yeah. And they cut the film without him. Just like he did for Ambersons. He, cut, he skipped yeah. town to go direct something in Brazil, and they, and, they, uh, and they cut the film without him. Yep. And he gets to claim that I've been, you know, I'm a victim of the Hollywood system, but then the Hollywood system's not going to wait around for you to come around and just finally cut it whenever you feel like it. So there, there, there's this old, there was always this pushback against anybody with authority uh, with his work. And we see it again with Touch of Evil. Yeah, and, and when you hear Orson tell stories... They're so convincing. If you listen, there's a documentary called It's All True, which is a wonderful documentary about that film he went to make in Brazil. And his story of why he wasn't around, it's a good story. It is a good story. And is it true? FDR told me I had to go. Yeah. uh, How are you going to contradict the president? Yeah. Um, (laughs) so, So he leaves... He comes back and watches a cut of the film. Yeah. And then in one night, which is this is what the legend is again, with seeing the film one time, he sits down and writes a 58-page memo wow. of what's wrong with the film. Yes. I remember this. And doesn't he enlist Chuck Heston or Charles Heston to, to, to fight his fight for him by sending him the notes as well? Well, so what, what happened with Heston, so Orson's gone. Yeah. The, the studio uh, 
sees the original assembly, and, and for anyone who knows, a first assembly of a film is sort of, it's basically the worst your movie's ever going to be. It's, right. You just kind of put it together. The studio goes, it's terrible. So they bring in another director to direct new scenes to make things make more sense. Yeah. And then they recut the film. When they bring in the new director, Heston downright refuses. I will not act for yeah. any director other than Orson Welles. He gets a call from his lawyer saying, according to your SAG contract, you can't do that. You'll yeah. be kicked out of the union if you refuse to act in this film. So he, he, he does act in the film. Uh, Hessen continues to defend Orson. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Does say you should make the changes. The studio says, oh, sure, Orson, we'll, we'll make the changes. They make maybe 3% of right. the changes. And that's the film that gets released. Right. Um, and Orson, by the way, when he signed up for, to do Touch of Evil, uh, gets a four-picture deal for Universal. Wow. Uh, and they kill it. Wow. Once he skips town on the so so that and that is the last film that Orson directs in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, so to, now in the, it's the mid '90s, and a producer gets the idea: Hey, what if we find if we find this 58-page memo? Yeah, maybe we could make Orson what Orson wanted the film to be. And in the smartest move ever, the editor that they bring in to do this job is Walter Murch. Yeah. Walter Murch is who I consider to be. He is the patron saint of editors. He is the guy. Mm -hmm. This is the editor of Apocalypse Now. And yeah. He did sound as a great sound designer on Godfather, editor of The Conversation, The English Patient, all these unbelievably great movies. So they right. go to one of the great editors in the world, and he gets the 58-page memo and painstakingly tries wow. to construct what he thinks Orson would have wanted from right. the original footage. Then I so so I'd seen the movie in the late '80s, early '90s, and went, "Wow, that's powerful!" But I'm confused. Yeah. Finally, I see the re-release, the reconstructed version, the mid '90s, late '90s, and the movie makes sense. Yeah. And it's a so if you're a real geek, I'd watch both. But it's available. They're available. They're definitely yeah. available. Uh, but the, it's a it's a real testament to the difference that editing can make in a film. Yeah, agreed. Uh, I think what's what you're talking about the the confusion part of it. It was I don't think I'd be surprised a person who sees it the first time and gets everything that's happening. I think that's the thing that's always been the uh, marks of mark of all the Wells films is they're very complex and you get something different every single time you see Absolutely. it. Absolutely, and in different times in your life when you revisit these films you get completely different things because he makes these kind of mini opuses within these small time allotments in these films that you can absolutely sink into characters and at one point not like the characters and then get a little bit older come back and understand the reason of those characters and it's what's fascinating about the, his construction of his and the work. opposite happens as well like with Charlton Heston's yeah. character mm -hmm. I think when, you know originally you sort of go oh this is sort of a straight up good guy right and then as you watch it more and more he keeps leaving his wife yeah alone and then and then when he when things go wrong and we'll get into this maybe yeah. more later when yeah. when he thinks his wife's in trouble he the law and order guy yeah he goes off the rails yeah yeah there's so much to talk about that relationship in this film and at the time yeah male female relationships and such yeah so uh, let's let's try. Oh, so for those of you who haven't seen Touch of Evil, once again, as always, we recommend that you go watch this movie. Uh, right, you know, stop the podcast, go right. watch the movie yes. right now. Thank you for the download because we will we will we're going to spoil everything there is. Absolutely, and it'll be more fun. We think if you know a little bit about the movie. But uh, just to review, here's I'm going to do my best I can to explain what the story is. Yes, and and what makes this movie so complicated is that there are actually three interlocking crime stories mm -hmm. happening simultaneously. The first is a bomb gets placed in the trunk of a car 
that gets driven from Mexico across the border into the United States where it explodes. Yes. In in what is arguably one of the top five tracking shots of all time. Yeah. Um, the opening of Touch of Evil, yeah. The opening of Touch of Evil. It starts with a close-up of the bomb and then over buildings across a border between two countries. Yeah. You know, with goats coming by the camera and different <laughs> movements and seeing Charlton, introduced to Charlton Heston and Janet Lee, yeah. who witnessed this explosion. So plot one is who committed this murder. And since it was committed on the crime began on the Mexico side and ended on the U S side. There's a jurisdiction issue. Right. Uh, Charlton Heston naturally is typecast as a Mexican, like attorney general, basically in brown face, basically in brown face, essentially with the mustache and everything. Well, if, but, if you have a mustache, doesn't that, isn't that all? Yeah, that's all you need. Right. Where normally I would have a problem with something like this. I, I always love Charlton Heston. So for me, uh, and he doesn't overplay him. Like he doesn't play him with an accent. He doesn't play him with any kind of thing that would be stereotypical, like what you see in what Mickey Rooney did to an abomination in Breakfast at Tiffany's. He plays the character. You hear him occasionally speak Spanish. It's not great speaking Spanish. Right. So you you kind of have to forgive him because you don't get the background on him. You don't know if he was born for to parents of white and uh, you know mixed descent or if he spent some time in America, what have you. So you kind of have to go along with what Heston presents to you. Um, but he's so he's so debonair and he has that kind of aristocracy vibe to him all the time it really works for a certain kind of mexican so for me that you know that absolutely existed at that time well and there's nothing negative in the portrayal nope, nothing unlike negative mickey at all. rooney this is an incredibly respectful exactly uh, in fact throughout the whole movie there there is no there are races represented yes and but there's no cliches yeah. in this film um interesting things about so the original uh script is from a book called badge of evil not mm -hmm. touch of evil right which you and mentioned, yeah. in in the original uh version it is a uh mexican woman who is marrying a american guy oh wow yeah and so when Hess so what happened is uh so Orson gets the script. They hire him to direct. He says, well, I need to rewrite the script. They say, sure, whatever. Of course. <laughs> so now, again, this is where we can't separate myth from reality. Right. What Orson says happened is that he hired three secretaries to work round the clock. He rented a house. And, he, and for four days, he stayed up for four days straight, probably on, on all sorts of speed and caffeine, sure. and lectured to uh, dictated the script round the clock and in four days had an entirely new movie. Um, so each one, they, they had eight hours each and they slept and yeah. he stayed up the whole time and wrote a whole new movie. <laughs> Basically the David Milch version of creating a film. Right. You know, for those of you who know, David Milch comes up at times with uh, dialogue on the set, right. scenes on the set that you have to learn immediately. Yeah. So whether or not that's true, he did switch those characters. Yeah. Uh, and then another interesting thing. So when Charlton Heston finds out he's going to play a Mexican guy, he says, oh, great, I'll do an accent. And Orson says to Heston. Uh, and I think it's an interesting thing about directing this. He said, no, 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 no. You don't have to do that because we, let's think about this guy's history. Yeah. He was Harvard educated. He's gone back and forth to the United States. He, hmm. he speaks English completely fluently without an accent because he's that intelligent right. and brilliant and, and well studied. And Heston goes, okay. Uh, and feels really good about his character for that reason. One of the things that's interesting about directing is <laughs> the reason you tell the actor yeah. isn't necessarily the reason that you want them to do the thing. Yes. Is that my gut is that he said, if Charlton Heston does an accent for this, it's going to be terrible. Right. We're much better off having him just play it straight. And so I'm going to come up with a reason. 
Yeah. To get him to do what I want him to do. I wonder if this is around the time when Brando had done Viva Zapata. Oh. And maybe he saw, yeah, let's not do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, 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 you know, one of the great quotes from Orson Welles, Orson, always good for a quote, yeah. is, is that the job of the director is to make love to the actors. And each actor needs to be made love to in a slightly different way. All great managers believe that. Yeah. So it's logical. And so he needed to play to Heston's ego. And yeah. he needed to play to... Uh, to get him to do what he wanted to do. Okay, so plot one is this bomb. Yes. And uh, because Charlton Heston is like the attorney general of Mexico, he's yeah. involved in the investigation. The investigation on the American side is going to be handled by the world's greatest detective, Hank Quinlan, yes. played by Orson Welles, mm-hmm. in an amazing, disturbing, gross, <laughs> upsetting yeah. uh, performance. You figure it was a bomb then, Hank? Well, Chief Rudy Lenniger could have been struck by lightning. Uh, where's the daughter? Marsha, got her right here waiting for you, Hank. There you go. You don't even want to question the daughter? Let her go and put a tail on her. Except what do you know? The DA. <laughs> In a monkey suit. Oh, well, you too. You got one of them. Well, we were all at the banquet. Uh, political round. No, Tootsie Steakhouse. T-Man. <laughs> T-Man. <laughs> Buy a little tea party off for Rudy Lennox's bonfire. Yeah, I hear he even invited some kind of a Mexican. Vargas has a theory that the murder itself was committed outside of our jurisdiction. Of course, we're all of us going to cooperate with don't Mr. Worry, Vargas Captain, here. I'm merely what the United Nations would call an observer. I don't talk like one. I'll say that for you. Uh, Mexican, I mean. He's literally a human blob moving yeah. through rooms. Yeah. yeah. And that he allows himself to look that disgusting. Yes. Comfortably, yes, and he and, and and to be to be really clear, he's forty years years old at this yeah, point. Yeah, he's not that fat. No, 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 he's not. If you look at footage of him from that era, he's you know big. Yeah, he's not huge. Right, and, and, you know we think of Orson Welles as this guy became this huge fat guy, but he's not yet. And he allowed himself to look just horrible. Right, for he, this film, he wore body padding. Oh, to yeah, make, to make him look even bigger. You know, I as when Steve was coming over here, I just watched uh, uh, an episode of I Love Lucy. That's 1956. It's yeah. literally two years before this film is made. He is nowhere near no. that size, so it's just it's all for appearance. But this is what Wells does. Wells always enjoyed losing himself in the makeup, losing himself in the physical construction of the characters to really uh, dive into the essence of what that character is, and had no shame doing it. Right. So that's plot one, solve this crime. And that ends up being the least important storyline. Yes. We actually dump that fairly soon. Plot two is that Charlton Heston's character, the attorney general, has just put away a big drug cartel. Yes. Which is the head of the Grandy family. Right. And now there's some Grandy relatives in this border town Mm -hmm. that they want to get at him through his young, beautiful wife, Janet Lee. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's, so that's plot two, the, the, the Grandy's plot to take down Charlton Heston. Right. Plot three is that Charlton Heston begins to suspect that Hank Quitlin, Orson Welles' character, is actually planting evidence. And the reason he's such a legendary detective is because he's planted evidence the whole time. Right. And that becomes the third plot, and the most important one. And so in the early versions of the film, it was very hard to figure out what the hell was going on to mm-hmm. keep these things straight. And, and in the new version, it's much clearer what's happening. That's great. What I've always enjoyed about this film and doing the research on it and, do, and watching some a- a- analysis of it, like it's right at the tail end of the film noir period of, of films, right. right? Right when it was a trend to do these kinds of films, it comes right at the tail end. And you could argue that it's you know, one of the best, if not the best noir film ever made uh you have that vibe throughout the whole film the darkness the lights that come occasionally the flashlights that come out of you know into in certain moments uh all the, the there's not there's never not a sense of dread or terror 
or a suspense through the entire film. There's not a moment or a mo- I don't think there's any moment in the film where you feel a sense of like relaxed, uh, a state of relaxation before the next thing ramps up. And that's what's amazing about the film. It's, it, it maintains your interest, but never exhausts you so that you don't like feel what happens at the end, you know, feel the power of what happens at the end. It is, I, I think by the time the movie's over, you are exhausted. You think so? But, okay. dur- but, but during the film, but, not but, at all. Yeah, right, exactly. You're, by the time the movie's over, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Once, the, once that movie ends, and, and just to start with the camera work, yeah. I don't think there's any movie that uses the camera like this. Yeah. It is, I think it's, it, the camera's co- almost constantly moving. Mm-hmm. It's never at a comfortable angle. Right. It's always, you know, low angles, below the actor, mm-hmm. uh, Dutch angles, which means the camera's tilted. Yeah. Uh, it's always moving, and it's always moving in a direction that's unexpected and surprising. Yeah. Um, it, it, it has this, and what's interesting too is why you need a great editor like Walter Murch is editing static camera positions, a wide shot, a close up, close up. It's really easy. Yeah. When the camera starts moving, and particularly when it moves in unexpected ways, the cut, the point at which you can cut that is comfortable yeah. is really difficult to find because it's a dance. Yeah. And this film really is a dance. And the way those shots flow together, you have this constant sense of, as you said, movement and dread and tension mm-hmm. that's un- really unlike anything else. It's almost like a POV film. Almost to to its purest. Like all film is done. Obviously, you're watching the film through the cameraman. But for me, it feels almost like you're a visitor through the whole film in these rooms. Uh, almost like a silent visitor or a hidden visitor throughout every point. And you're unsettled by how close the camera gets to what's happening. Uh, and the movement of it all, it just makes you even more because you can't do anything about it right. as you're watching it. You know, as as the rape occurs, the gang rape occurs on Janet Lee, which is very horrific. As the death of Akeem. Tamaroff when he gets when he gets choked out Grande gets choked out basically on top of J, uh, Janet Lee uh, all those things they they unsettle you and you see Var- and you see Vargas's reactions to everything which is the character that Charlton Heston is playing you see his reactions to everything and how how it, it, it's increasing in him the frustration of the situation because he be, he's being pulled in so many different directions so to watch him move through the film he himself the camera movement mirrors his frustration of being stretched so thin and not expecting to. That's the thing. It's a bomb. Okay, let's figure this out. Oh, there's more. And then there's this. And then there's this. And then my wife's in danger. And we just got married. And then, the, you know, there's just so much involved. Um, and, I, and I love the noir uh, aspects of the film that Wells does so well with the lighting, with uh, Janet Leigh and the lingerie, with these moments of, uh, of extreme darkness and then you see people coming into frame, coming into the camera frame, which is just so it's just so difficult to do that effectively. You know, the scene when when Wells walks into the frame, when they capture the uh, uh, who was it? The, the, oh, when Grande comes to the crime scene where he's plant, he supposedly planted the 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 uh, dynamite sticks in the shoebox, all that when Wells comes into frame from the left. And it's to be understood that he was in the bathroom. Quinlan was in the bathroom right. and got disturbed in the middle of whatever he was doing in the bathroom and had to come out and deal with Grande. All those things are just great, great, great elements of the movie. So so uh, there's so many things to talk about that I'm I'm kind of picking which one to start. No, no, please. I, so let's you know. l- let's start let's start at the beginning. Okay. So we have this great tracking shot. Yeah. And uh, the way that it was originally done was this wonderful tracking shot they did under titles. Mm-hmm. So they played the titles over the tracking shot, which meant you were reading and you weren't really paying attention to the details. Right. And they also had music playing. They had uh, the score is Henry Mancini. It's yeah. a great, great, great score. Pink Panther guy. Yeah, yeah great, and it's a great jazz score. It's yes. very unique. 
Um, and one of the things in Orson Welles' notes was, please take the titles off the opening sequence and please get rid of the score. The music is great, but there should be sound design. And he describes what the sound design should be. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and so sound design is something we don't talk about that much as mm-hmm. filmmakers mm-hmm. because we're mostly, we talk, you spend 90% of your time thinking about picture mm-hmm. and 10% of your time thinking about sound. But sound's actually hugely important. Yeah. And one person that really knew that is Orson Welles because prior to coming to Hollywood, what did Orson Welles do? He worked in radio. Yeah. Uh, and if anyone's, you've, most people have heard of the War of the Worlds, which is uh, one of the productions of the Mercury Theater on the air. It's his right. most famous one, not his best one. No. And if you listen to some of the Mercury Theater on the air, you'll see that even back in the late 30s, Orson Welles understood sound design. He yeah. understood the power of sound. Ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilmer's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. The more state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. Captain and two policemen advanced with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Ah! The whole field's caught up by the woods, the bars, the, the gas tank, tanks of the automobiles spreading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. So what he wanted was that as you move from Mexico to the United States, that you're constantly hearing the changes. You're hearing the changes in the music from the car. As the car goes farther away, that music goes away. Different music comes in. As we go by the strip clubs and the bars, we're hearing that kind of music. As we go into the U.S., we hear American music. We're hearing, you know, all of this thing. And all of that is part of the storytelling. Right. And the shot is, and you pay so much more attention. You see so much more detail in the shot because the sound design that Orson wanted is back in. Yeah, and again, like I'm saying, the POV stuff. Like, it's so, that's what you would hear if you were to walk down the street yep. in this situation. You would hear the music from the car go uh, get softer as it goes, as the car gets farther away from you. Then you would hear the strip club music as you're walking right by it. This yep. is what's so great about the film to me is it, it completely immerses you in the world that it is creating and doesn't let you out until the end. No matter what you do, it does not let you out. It doesn't give you some sitting in the field, thinking about everything with daisies around you. No, there's no respite to what's happening. And it's a very uncomfortable place to be. Uh, and the characters and the actors and the way that they're uh, the way that they're dressed and the way that their hair is done, all of it makes you get that kind of weird feeling. And especially at the time, because what, it's 1958. Mm-hmm. So like the whole idea of the wild one just happened with, with, uh, with uh, Marlon Brando. You have the idea of biker gangs now yep. thrown into this, you know, and this is something that you would think Wells, who had just directed only like a, what, a decade and a half ago, he had just directed Citizen Kane. You see how different the people that he is portraying in Citizen Kane are to the people he is portraying in Touch of Evil. Well, one of the interesting things about Wells is we elevate him as like the great director. Yes. And Citizen Kane is, is, a, is a substantial movie. Absolutely. Orson Welles loves genre. Yeah. If you look at The Stranger, Lady from Shanghai, yes. Mr. Arcaden, uh, and this, these are, you know... Even F for Fake, which is a documentary genre, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a weird documentary. Yes, it, it really a, is, but it's a it's genre. A, it's a yeah, genre. He's, he definitely is interested in genre. Yeah. He likes crime and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Um, I think one of the good ways we can do to go through this, because as I said, there's so much stuff, yeah. is to sort of take each of the characters. So uh, Janet Lee, yes, uh, she's just married uh, Charlton Heston's character. Right. And 
right very early, right when this crime happens, she gets pulled away by a young Mexican guy yeah. to come back across the border and for some reason. And she goes with him. She really does. Which which is interesting because she's she she's presented to us as a, a kind of powerful woman with her own mind. You know, and I like, and I, it's a great, uh, great portrayal to see this female character right off the bat. She's kind of telling Heston what's up, you know, and then when she takes the paper, she reads the paper from the young Mexican guy who supposedly saved his her life from being hit by some car that was going by. Uh, she reads the paper and says just under her breath, what have I got to lose? And then she says, don't answer that question. And then goes with them. So what, what is that? Is that a sense of adventure? Is that, a, like, is that why she married a Mexican attorney general? Like that wasn't done back in the 50s. You know what I'm saying? There's all of this playing through it that I think is fantastic. Well, and I think we can't feel comfortable with her. No. Because there's a certain, I would call it an American arrogance. Yes. In her character. Yeah. Which is that she has a feeling of vulnerable invulnerability. Yeah. What could possibly happen to me? I'm an American. I, 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 I am superior in some way. I've married this powerful guy. Right. I am safe. And what this movie does. And even when she meets with Akeem, how did you say? Akeem Tamaroff. Yeah. Akeem Tamaroff, who's yeah. one of the bad guys. Who's yeah. Who's really grande. great. Yeah. And she meets with him and she's really nasty to him. Yes. In a way that you probably shouldn't be when you're all, a woman all alone across the border. Right. With a, literally, a known criminal. Right. The Grandi family is living here in Los Robles a long time. Some of us in Mexico, some of us on this side. Must be convenient for business. Yeah. What business? Brandy business. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know what's wrong with you, Mr. Grandy? You've been seeing too many gangster movies. Mike may be spoiling some of your... Mike? My husband, yeah. And if you're trying to scare me into calling him off, let me tell you something, Mr. Grandy. I may be scared, but he won't be. What's so funny about that? Preguntale si su marido es celoso. He wants to murder your husband. Husband is jealous, senor. You silly little pig. Who are you talking about? I'm talking about you, you ridiculous, old-fashioned, jug-eared, lopsided little Caesar. I didn't get that, senor. You'll have to talk slow. I'm talking slow, but in a minute I'll start to yell. I wouldn't do that, senor. And yet she's nasty to him. And then what we see... Of a syndicate, like crime syndicate, yeah. not just a gang member. Yeah. yeah. And what we see in the course of the film is, I don't want to say her comeuppance, because I certainly don't want to say no, that she of deserves what happens to her, uh, because it's terrible. No. But what we see is the all of her sense of invulnerability and safety is pulled away. What we see is the consequences of her blind actions. And that's the thing. And it's not it's not good or bad in terms of like, we're not saying she deserved it. We're saying... This is the unfortunate consequences of her actions. Well, and, and right? she sense. wouldn't have been in this position if she didn't feel an invulnerability, as you said. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old. And this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, yeah, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? 
free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. And as we, so what happens to her, she ends up going to this motel yes. in the middle of nowhere. She's the only person in the motel. Yes. And the scariness, oh, the yeah. isolation uh, from the very first time I saw it, I was like, this is really, really disturbing. Do you mean the first motel or do you mean when he, when she goes over to Dennis Weaver's, Dennis Weaver's motel? Yeah. Dennis Weaver's motel. Yes. Which is, yeah. Which is out in the middle of this, you know, just kind of barren area. She gets taken there with Grande in the car yeah. And uh, the detective, who is uh, 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 Quinlan's assistant, uh, and gets left there. And you have Dennis Weaver, who is this incredibly sexually repressed, kind of doing a dry run at Psycho, a Perkins Psycho almost, mm-hmm. which is ironic considering Janet Lee's the in Psycho and in this film, he is so uh, just he's like a you know he's just like this scared little thing. He can't even make the bed for her. And that's that's shows you that he's she's so sexy, she's so beautiful, she's so such a thing to be wanted that he can't even be in the same room with her without flipping out. Yeah, you know. I think, and I think we should be clear that Janet Lee should stay away from isolated motels. Yes, yeah, all just around. A bad idea all for around. her. Stay, stay in the city. <laughs> um, yeah, I, Dennis, we we got to talk about his character yes. just for a moment because. He's like in a different movie. He really he's, is. It's like a Commedia dell'arte mm-hmm. comedy, and it works great. Yeah, it really does. It, it is, it's, it's really big, and it's really funny. Which it shouldn't be, and yet it does. It works great. Yeah. And then what happens to Janet is slowly but surely the creep starts to happen. Yes. We know that the bad guys have shown up, the young gang, mm-hmm. and we know that she's in trouble. She doesn't know that she's in trouble. And right. then there's this one moment where they're hearing a, she's hearing a party next door, and someone knocks on the wall, and a woman whispers to her and says, you know what they're going to do to you. And that is really, really, really scary. Yeah. Honey, you, in the next room. What is it? Come to the wall so I can whisper. Yes? You know what the boys are trying to do. Don't you? They are trying to get in there. They went to get the master key. And we don't know exactly what happens to her. We know she gets drugged. There's an implication of rape. She's definitely gang raped. I would say that for certain. I, 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 don't, I don't know. Okay. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's horrible. Yes. It, there's, it is so, she's so helpless and so, and, and you can see that strength and that courage slowly breaking down as she realizes the situation that she's in yes you see because they pick her up they so one of them says get her legs and the last we see and mercedes mccambridge comes in who if uh who is great in the movie giant if you haven't seen giant mercedes is fantastic and that she is the female gang leader and walks in and you don't and that's almost worse 
Oh, yeah. And, you know, to be the leader of a male gang, you know how hardcore you have to be to be the leader of a male gang as a woman. And so the fact that she's walking in, and she's very, how would you say this? She's very uh, she's very masculine in her portrayal. Yeah. The hair is longer and it's quaffed with the gel, the leather jacket. She's got the jeans rolled up. It's all there that she's almost, you could say, almost a, a, a butch lesbian, not to speak out of turn, but very much so. You know, she's a very powerful yeah. male, female, uh, female male person. And when they open her, when they separate her legs with Jenny Lee and lift her above the bed and the door closes, to me, in my opinion, that's the, what they could get away yeah. with the Hayes Code that they are uh, they're doing the gang rape. And, and, and so Mercedes McCambridge, I think she only has two lines in the film. Yeah, <laughs> and, but and, they're very and, powerful lines. And she's maybe in eight shots. And yet that one look of hers as she walks into the room is so oh, profound yeah, it is. that it haunts you. Yeah. Um, so, so while that's going on, we have Charlton Heston uh, following this investigation. Yeah. Um, and there's one shot. So everybody always talks about the tracking shot at the opening of the film, mm-hmm. and they should because right. it's amazing. But what they don't talk about is the tracking shot within the apartment. So, oh, yes. So, so they come to the apartment investigating the guy who Quinlan is convinced has committed this uh, bombing, the yes. murder. And it's all in one shot. Uh, it was their very first day of shooting. Um, oh. Yeah, first okay. day. And studios tend to send an executive down to the set yes usually on the first day of shooting to call up the 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 head of the studio to say when they got their first shot up right and you would hope that let's say you have an 8 a.m call or 6 to 7 a.m call that by 10 you're rolling the camera yeah you would hope so they come down 10 o'clock they're not rolling the camera 11 o'clock they're not rolling the camera 12 they're not rolling one two three Four o'clock, they start rolling the camera, finally. Wow. Well, and the reason is because they're doing seven pages of material in one shot. And it's a very complicated oh. shot. And, and what Orson says is that that was the most difficult shot of his career, not the tracking shot <laughs> at the beginning of the film. Um, wow. And at six, they do five takes of it, I think. Right. At six o'clock, they wrap, and they're three days ahead. Wow. Yeah. Now, now again, that's Orson's story. Yes, uh, true. Fair you know? point. But but that's but this is also why we love Orson stories. Yeah, it's yeah, a romantic yeah. story. Yeah. So that that is extremely difficult, and that is where we see this key piece of information <laughs> that Charlton Heston accidentally knocks over a shoebox in the bathroom. And if you watch his performance, it's really fat. It shows what a good physical actor he is because yeah. he has to do this weird double pirouette to pick up the shoebox and open it in such a way that he opens it up towards camera. Yeah. So that we see that the shoebox is empty. Because it's a key piece. Yeah. It's the most important piece of evidence in the movie because later on, Quinlan finds the di- extra dynamite in the shoebox, which proves that the guy is the bad guy, yeah. which makes Charlton Heston go, I looked in that shoebox. I looked in that shoebox. It was empty. Right. You found the dynamite in this box? Dynamite? Yeah. Pete found it. Told you then. Captain. Yeah. I looked in that box just now. There wasn't anything there. I know how you feel. Do you? Sure, I do. You people are touchy. It's only human you'd want to come to the defense of your fellow countrymen. Vargas! Vargas, don't worry. Why should I worry? Uh, you go right ahead and say anything you want to. Folks will bear your natural prejudice in mind. I saw that shoebox ten minutes ago, yeah, Captain. Well, maybe you didn't notice. I knocked it over on the bathroom floor. I couldn't very well have failed to notice two sticks of dynamite. Tell any story you want. The shoebox was empty. Go on saying it's empty. Folks will understand. I'm saying more than that, Captain. 
You framed that boy. Framed him! Well, and this is what's, um, when you find out later in the film, which is what I enjoy about this, they set this all up that you have Quinlan is dirty, Vargas is the hero, this guy is being framed, this poor Mexican guy is being framed for this bombing, it's not him, and then you find out later in the film uh, that he did bomb the car, that he was the one who planted the bomb he confessed to it and he was the person who did it so in a way Quinlan didn't have to plant the bomb for him to be or the dynamite for him to be to get the confession out of him and this is and it brings everything back into question was Quinlan really dirty <laughs> well the, the implication in the film and we of course we don't know yeah we know that Quinlan has planted evidence in the past yes but the implication is he planted evidence on people that were guilty that were guilty yes now saying we don't he would have gotten the confession anyway we don't know that guy would have confessed if there wasn't evidence discovered perhaps you know um and and this gets into this moral question the th- the theme of the film uh there's a great scene with Charlton Heston and Quinlan where they're arguing yes and Charlton Heston says something I, I'll try to find the quote but that mm-hmm. his job is to enforce the law. And Quinlan says, my job is to get the bad guys. My friend Vargas has some very special ideas about police procedure. He seems to think it don't matter whether a killer's hanged or not, so long as we obey the fine well, print. Captain, rule I don't think a policeman should work like a dog catcher. No. Putting criminals behind bars? No. In any free country, a policeman uh, is supposed to enforce the law, and the law protects the guilty as well as the innocent. Our job is tough enough. It's supposed to be. It has to be tough policeman's job is only easy in a police state. That's the whole point, Captain. Who is the boss, the cop or the law? And that is a fundamental difference, and it relates Mm -hmm. to uh, the famous John Adams quote, which is that we are a government of laws, not men. Right. And this comes from, of course, we're rebelling against a, a monarchy in which the ultimate seat of power is a, is this person, the king. Yes. And what, Adams is saying is that the ultimate seat of power should be pe- should not be people because people are flawed. Yes, that the ultimate seat of power must be law, mm-hmm. the rule of law, and that is and and that in the case of this, Vargas would argue probably that it's more important that the law is sanctified and the bad guy sometimes gets away yeah. than that we as flawed humans violate the law and bring the bad guy in. Right, and Quinlan would say the opposite, and this debate still rages on now. Absolutely. It's a, it's it's an endless debate. It's a timeless debate always, you know. The the person who sticks by the rules versus the one who bends the rules a little bit, which one do you side with, you know? And you find like like you said, but yeah, exactly. Would he have gotten the confession? That's certainly a very good point, but I I think eventually because he always gets the confession, he would have gotten the confession, but you're very right to say that perhaps he didn't. Yeah, the the well, we we we, don't, we can't know, we can. and this is this is a hallmark of Orson Welles' films is there is an element to them which is unknowable. Yes, you don't get into the end of Citizen Kane and go, oh, now I get it. Yeah, you right. Know? Oh, I got, I'm all over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. you don't get to the end of Touch of Evil and go, oh, okay. You get to the end of Touch of Evil and go, huh? Right. How am I going to deal with this? Well, how can I reckon with what I've just seen? Yeah. Um, because you like Quinlan. You do. In a way, you're more drawn to him than you are to Charlton Heston. Absolutely. Charlton Heston's the straight guy. Yeah. You know, he's just, he's a good guy. You know how many of us, how many of us look like Charlton Heston or have the life of Charlton? Right. Nobody. I mean, there's like five, ten, five percent of the population. Maybe. So we, we gravitate to Quinlan because we see the foibles of Quinlan Flaws. And what's great about Touch of Evil is they show us his vulnerability in the scenes with Marlena Dietrich. We see that before 
this Quinlan, there was another Quinlan. There was a Quinlan that Marlena Dietrich's character loved and enjoyed and had uh, had a, a history with, a relationship with. So much so that when she sees him for the first time, she doesn't recognize him, right. who he is now. Because the things that he has done to survive as he's gotten older, to stay on top as a detective who can be employed constantly, have, have destroyed his soul. And he, you could say he probably expanded his waistline as well to deal with the stress of having to uh, do those kinds of things. Well, and we know a couple things. We know a little backstory. We know that uh, Quinlan's wife was murdered. Yes. Uh, and strangled, which becomes an important point that Quinlan brings up over and over again. That's the best way to kill someone yes. because you don't leave fingerprints on a, on a, on a string, yeah. on a wire. Hmm. Um, which he ends up using. Which he ends up using. Grandy, yeah. When he kills Grandy. Um, and we know that Quinlan was a drunk. Yes. And has gone, become sober. And that he, he says... Uh, when Marlena Dietrich says you got so fat, he says uh, too many lollipops. Candy bars. Or candy bars. Right. Candy bars. So lollipops is Kojak. <laughs> yeah. Too many candy bars, but it's better than the hooch. Yes. Um, and, of course, we watch what happens when he goes off the candy bars yeah. and back to the hooch yeah. in the course of this film. And the reason he does is because Vargas is suddenly suspecting that he's planted evidence, which he right. knows he has. Right. And so, and then, and this goes back to the why we should be a country of laws and not men mm -hmm. is the moment that he's threatened. Yeah. He's willing to do whatever is necessary to destroy Vargas. Yes. Including selling out his partner, who had been kind of turning a blind eye to these things and not, you know, I think sometimes you can be blinded by your loyalty to a friend and you see that in this film. And in the end, you know, they end up killing each other, uh, Quinlan and Schwartz, but Schwartz is defending him, defending him. And it isn't until he absolutely sees the truth that he implores Quinlan not to, to change, to not be this way, to not do these things that he's doing to Vargas. You know, he goes on Vargas' side. Uh, and what I think is fascinating to watch with the Quinlan character progression is he knows the end is near. And so his desperation causes him to be sloppy causes him to be in sloppy in ways that he never was before by staying at one step ahead of anybody who would ever suspect him of anything. He's so smart that he knows how to play the system, but it isn't until he meets a younger, more good looking, more determined foe that I think some of his stuff comes out and you see him get sloppy. You see him get messy. You see him sacrifice just about anybody to stay out of uh, getting caught. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the partner it's such a it, one. One of the great things you can watch is the attention played to the supporting characters. Yeah, and the partner is one of them. Where you could see that he has built his whole universe on the religion of Hank Quinlan. Yes, I work for a great man. Yes, and as he discovers that Quinlan has planted evidence, you watch this guy's universe fall apart. Yeah, and that he's in fact been a part of it. Yeah. he is. He is essentially an accessory mm -hmm. to putting these people in jail who maybe they didn't do it. Right. We and we can never know. We cannot know, because uh, oh, we, we assume there's dozens or even a hundred cases in the back that yeah. has planted evidence. We, we don't know. Right. W watching Vargas as well, as you watch him fall apart, like you, he is law and order guy. Yes. From the beginning. And he is sort of clean and untouchable. He is as, as, as clean as Quinlan appears dirty throughout yeah. the film. Yes. And the moment that he discovers that his wife is in trouble, yeah. he goes nuts. Yes. He, and there's a shot, by the way, where... Charlton Heston, Chuck was strong. Yes. Because there's a shot where he picks up a dude, not a big dude, but he picks up a dude one-handed mm -hmm. and carries him through, down a bar. And it's just like, man, 
you do not want to mess with that guy. <laughs> yeah. He is losing it. And this is before that high-end wire work. So, right. I mean, that was real stuff. That's real stuff. He just yeah. picked up that guy <laughs> with one hand. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's uh, what I enjoy so much about the film is they really populate the rooms and the areas that they're in uh, to the nth degree. It's ve- you, you very much enjoy the decoration, the music, the interactions of the characters. Even the characters don't have any lines on screen, you see them in the background, the way that they're interacting with each other, you get the idea of what this place is, whatever place you're in. You get a good feeling of what it is. And especially when you go into the strip, the strip bar with, that uh, that uh, Marlena Dietrich's character owns, the woman dancing, you just see the bottom half of her legs. You know, you're, so you're, like, you're getting this very, uh, I don't know, to me it's a very sexual view into the world. Like The fact that you're looking through the legs is a way of, like, it, it lets you know what you're, what, this, oh, yeah. this hidden world or this, or this like kind of forbidden world you're not supposed to go in you know? well well and and without being blatant about it in any yeah. way it's always there's always the sense that you know an orson welles film is like an iceberg which is that you see the surface and yeah. you realize there's so much more beneath it mm-hmm. marlena dietrich's character is a huge example which by the way the studio didn't know that marlena dietrich is gonna act in the movie oh wow they had no idea um because one of the things to keep in mind is the draw of orson welles as a director and a yeah. personality is huge yes so as soon as so he had done uh he had cut sawed marlena dietrich in half during his magic shows yes so they were buddies Mm -hmm. so he just called her up and said you want to be this movie and she said sure and she comes in and shoots i think she only shoots one day maybe two that's a surprise only four or five scenes yeah Yeah. and she just steals the movie every time she's on screen just looking at her Mm -hmm. she without her saying anything is profound yeah they're showing dailies with the studio and the executives go hold on a second is that marlena dietrich (laughs) and rosa says yeah of course and they go how how did you get her i asked her same with and, and that throughout the film, the supporting characters, Ray Collins, who's just the yeah. g- great uh, from Citizen Kane, from yeah. the Perry Mason show, from Mercury Theater. He had done all the radio shows with Orson. Yes. Great actor as one of the detectives. Uh, Joseph Cotton shows up. Total cameo. Total cameo. Great shot Uncredited. Yeah. Um, uh, and you have you know, Zaza Gabor, Zaza Gabor in, yeah, in, right. in one of the strip clubs. That all these And you get the sense as you meet these people that they all have a history. Yeah. They all have previous relationships with, with Hank Quinlan. They all have, uh, you know, when you meet Grandy, when you meet all these people, you sense the the backstory behind them without yes. ever being told it. Mm-hmm. The uh, Let's get to the murder sure. of Grandy. The murder of Grandy, is, it's such a complex scene. It's, by the way, uh, my understanding is it's one of the first uses of handheld camera work wow. in a film. Okay. Because previous to that time, cameras were so big yes. that it was just too awkward to handhold them. And so the, that camera is moving in that scene in this... It's never in a place you're comfortable. Right. It's always in a place you're uncomfortable. It's always a strange angle. Yes. And the fact that you have unconscious uh, drug Janet Lee lying in the bed while yeah. this horrific murder is happening right above her right. is terrifying. Yes. And I, this feeling again is in this scene, the feeling of like you're, you're almost uh, a, hidden, uh, a hidden viewer of the film, a hidden witness of the murder. Because the camera moves left to right, angles. It's almost like you're being knocked over by the people in the room doing it because you have a large man in Quinlan. You have a somewhat smaller but larger man in Tamaroff. So you see these two heavier guys fumble around. It's not It's not elegant. It's not choreographed in a way that you would normally see a fight be choreographed. It's very desperate. It's very fumbling. It's very... You don't know who's going to win at times. The screaming of Grandi is so yeah. unsettling because he had been such a powerful character through the film. He wasn't any kind of badass because he always 
let his emotions get ahead of himself or get a, get the best of him in certain moments, especially near the beginning when he slaps that that uh, that the gang the, the gang guy from running away from him and knocks off his own toupee by sla- by slapping him. Oh, so he's he's a he's a bit comical in the way that he's a villain, but in that scene he really is reduced to nothing because it is a bear attacking. It's almost like the Revenant. If you, if you haven't seen the Revenant, <laughs> it's a bear attacking Leonardo DiCaprio. That's what he's doing. He's attacking him, and there's he sla- you know the fact that he shatters the window trying to get out. This desperate attempt to get out because he's lured him there. Quillen has lured him there in a way of saying, like, "Yeah, I'm with you. What you're doing to Janet Lee, what you do, yeah, it all makes sense. Let's do it together." Blah blah blah. And then he turns on him, but to try to frame him, and he takes that the way that he takes the curtain down with such ferocity, wraps it, and then just starts to choke him out. Uh, it's just so. Like, it's so unsettling, really. It's a sense that you're watching a murder in real time. Right. In real time, you know? There's a, there's a thing that uh, Coppola says in The Making of the Godfather, which is that he wanted the violent... He didn't want the violence to be pornographic. Right. And what he meant by that was that... And we see this all the time in films, yes. most of the time, is that violence is uh, done beautifully. Yes. And in a way that is titillating and exciting. Mm-hmm. And if you watch the violence in The Godfather, it's not that way. Right. And this scene is... Definitely not that no, way. Really and I think Orson has this, he has an ability to move in a way that is awkward and violent and emotional. Mm-hmm. If you look at, in particular, it relates to me to the scene where uh, Cain destroys uh, the bedroom oh, yeah. of Susan Alexander. And it has this weird, stiff, it is not, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's, a, it's an old, stiff guy who's totally lost it emotionally yeah. and it's very awkward and this fight scene has a similar quality yeah. of it's not beautiful it is mm-hmm. like brutal and and weird and difficult right. um uh one other thing about the murder and again it's just great storytelling yeah. he closes the door at the end of the murder and it says did you forget anything and of course he did he forgot his cane yes which is a key and, and the other thing and and this is just important to point out in terms of his touch of evil mm-hmm. which is becomes true evil the fact that he kills this man yeah. above drugged Janet Lee is what seals his, destroys his soul. Yes. You know what I mean? Like that's where we go. No, this is a bad guy. Right. Because he is complicit in whatever happened to Janet Lee. Yes. He is aware of, he allows it to happen yeah. and he does nothing to save her. And once again, sloppy leaving the cane behind yeah. because this is new territory for him. Like you were saying, like it's a great point. You just said, Steve, the touch of evil versus the full evil. And you see at the beginning, you could say he has a touch of evil. It is through the, through the movie that you realize he is evil at the end, you know, yeah. he's evil in, because he, he just, he, he does not stop himself when he could, when he can, when he should. And by going full bore, he gets his comeuppance in the end. And in that moment when he's choking, uh, uh, Grandy out, you see that this is the, this is the extent to which he's willing to break the law and break the rules and bend the rules. He's no longer a cop. He is now a criminal. Oh, you yeah. know, it's completely, it, it's the, when, it's when fully the change happens. So it's a, it's a great point you bring. Well, and, and, and then we have to assume, was he ever a good guy? Right. And, and, and the answer is, we don't know. Yeah. And, and, and my guess is that we're going to be, that he would be a mix. Yeah. However you, and, and, and the person we see that the most through is Marlene Dietrich's character. Yeah. And her obstacles, she has known him throughout time. Mm-hmm. And, and one thing I want to point out too, uh, the music with Marlene, every time we go to her, we hear yeah. this piano uh, melody and it is haunting mm-hmm. and old fashioned. Old. It's old. Yeah. It's, it's from a time before. Yeah. Right? It's when they 
had a better relationship before when things were brighter, when the world was more fun and relaxed and they understood the world. Yeah. And so it's a way from, that's why every time he sees her, it's like he's going back into a time machine. Um, and I think the reason she steals the movie, Steve, is that she's the one solid person in the whole film, which is ironic. Yeah. You know, everyone else is having a crisis of conscience or is having their vulnerabilities or their strengths questioned uh, or their way of lives deconstructed. She is the constant. And because she is also incredibly beautiful with those eyes and that very soft German accent in her in her uh, speech um, and the wig, all of it, just all of it. She is so striking initially. Then you see her portrayal and her acting and the fact that she has something smart and correct to say every time she says she opens her mouth. And it's so, so powerful in that way, which is why she steals it. Absolutely. And she is a person of true wisdom. Yes. She's a person who is, uh, has experience. She has life experience. Mm -hmm. She has learned things. She is not uncompassionate. No. She, she, she is sympathetic. Yes. But she is not... Like, for instance, she has the line she's doing, uh, she has her tarot cards out. Yeah. And he says, you want to move, read my future. And she says, your future is all used up. You've been reading the cards, haven't you? I've been doing the accounts. Come on, read my future for me. You haven't got any. Hmm? What do you mean? Your future is all used up. Why don't you go home? It's perfect. It's such a line, you know, and and, and that that it's not that she doesn't care about him, no, but she she sees what's happening. Yeah, she sees what's going to happen. Yeah, right. And, and, it's a helicopter coming through. Yeah, Look, yeah. this is Los Angeles. All right, take it. Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, like th- stuff is going to mess up shots. For instance, let me make a strange. <laughs> Here segue. we go. That opening tracking shot. The there was a guy playing a security guard, a border guard at the gate. Yeah, couldn't remember his line. He had the <laughs> last last line in the tracking shot. So it's a four minute what? shot, five minute shot. This crane is going over buildings. There's yeah. cars. There's goats. There's kids. There's all sorts of people. They get to the 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 border guard, and not only does he blow his line, but he immediately turns to the camera and says, I'm sorry, Mr. Wells. And he did it <laughs> multiple times. Wow. So that by the time they're finally finishing, and, and this is like the worst thing. And Orson is being re- nice to him. And someone said, why did you, why didn't you yell at him? Why didn't you fire him? Yeah. And Orson said, well, that would ruin his life. That would be, that would be cruel. Wow. Uh, which is interesting. So when they get to the final take and now, and if you watch the take that's in the movie, yeah. it's dawn. The sun is coming oh, up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the skies are starting to get light, which means there will be no other take. And they didn't have a big budget on this movie. If they don't get it, they don't get it. Yeah. So what Orson tells the guy is he says, don't say anything. Say nothing. Just, he's going to have you look away from camera, say nothing. And whatever you do, do not say, I'm sorry, Mr. Wells. Just look that way. And then Orson dubs his line. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. I mean, I did not know that. Yeah, I can't imagine being that last guy <laughs> and blowing that shot. It's terrible. Yeah, what well, you speak about the film, $800,000 budget, right? Shot in 38 days or something like, something that. like that. Yeah, it wasn't which is not that much for a 
uh, uh, film at that time or, or now. It's a B picture. Yeah, it's a definitely, definitely. So, and because that's because it was tail into the noirs. It was yeah. a tail into the noirs, and you saw that. Uh, before we move on from the killing, I want to talk about real quick the lighting in that that really helps. Oh, yeah. Once I mean, just the movement of the shadows, the movement of light, uh, where the light is, the fact that like the light is angular, the hitting of the bulb, so that you oh, see yeah. Tamaroff's f- completely. Uh, a choked face. It's almost like a bulging face, I would yeah. say, right? The eyes are bulging out. The tongue is bulging out. His cheeks are bulging out. You know, hanging over Janet Lee when she comes to, which is, you know, Janet Lee is put through so much in Horrible. this film, you know? It's almost like you could, it, she becomes, she, it, she stops being a femme fatale. It's completely something else, you know? And at that time, I don't know if you could get away with that now. You know, she's a female character that gets gang raped, gets left behind by her husband, then has all this stuff happen to her. Uh, and it's a way to be for you to be sympathetic to him. And that's the thing that's so uh, interesting about her character. I don't think it would get away with it now. Well, I think one of the things that Hollywood doesn't like today is complexity. Yes. They want answers. That's a good point. You know, they want, this is the good guy and this is the bad guy and this is what this meant. Right. And Touch of Evil is not give you that. Nope. You don't get to know how to feel about this film. Mm -hmm. And and in fact, Marlena Dietrich, with her final line, is one of the great final lines of all time. Hank Quillen has died in the gunfight. His body is floating out in uh, shot at uh, Venice Beach, by the way, one of the canals in Venice. And um, his body is in the water. And someone asks Marlena Dietrich, you know, what she thinks of was he a good guy or bad guy? And she says he was some kind of a man. What does it matter what we say about people? So, it turns out Quinlan was right after all. Isn't somebody going to come and take him away? Yeah, in just a few minutes. You really liked him, didn't you? The cop did. The one who killed him. He loved him. Well, Hank was a great detective, all right. And a lousy cop. Is that all you have to say for him? He was some kind of a man. What does it matter what you say about people? And that is say, that is a refusal to give you a message. Yeah. Which, by the way, I will contend forever, spoiler alert in Citizen Kane, it's a sled, that that does not answer the questions. I don't think it does. I think it creates more questions. Interesting. I think you go, you know that, and we're obviously we'll do a Citizen Kane podcast. We someday, will at some point. But, but we know that it's about his childhood. Right. We know it's about his mom, but I don't know how to feel about that mom. I don't know how to feel. I don't know what that says about him. Interesting. I'm, that's why that movie is haunting. Okay. You don't walk out of Citizen Kane going, oh, I get it. Hmm. You walk out of Citizen Kane going, whoa. And you walk out of Touch of Evil, you do not get it. No. Yeah, you know, because there is no good guy. No, not even not even Vargas. No, who is who is presented to us as the good guy, uh, and has all the characteristics of a good guy. He, you see that being deconstructed as the film goes forward and, as well. And, yeah, and if we project Vargas and Janet Lee's character forward, yeah, I don't know how they're going to do. Yeah, I don't know how that marriage is going to survive. No, yeah. I don't know what kind of uh, attorney he's going to be from right. now on. Right, he, th- these people are changed mm-hmm. by what's happened here, yeah. and not in a way that's predictable. Yeah, you know. The only guy that doesn't seem like he's changed is the guy who's who's recording the whole time at the end, who records the, who picks up the. Right. And he's the one that says the line to Marlena Dietrich. Right, right. He's just one of these guys that kind of goes through life. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. There's a there's something that was said about Orson. So he comes to Hollywood to make Citizen Kane. Yes. And obviously, we'll talk more about this. You know, we're, Orson's going to come back. Yes. Um, 
And he was known as the boy genius. He's 24 years old. Mm -hmm. And Citizen Kane is basically a disaster for RKO because of the conflict with William Randolph Hearst and for all these other reasons. And RKO's slogan after Citizen Kane became showmanship, not genius. Wow. That's how RKO changed their slogan. And I think when you look at Touch of Evil and you see the cut that was made without Orson's permission. Yeah. This is the this is him throughout his life. It's yeah. showmanship, not genius. And then what you see with the Walter Murch version is like, oh, here's the genius. Yeah. And you gotta let Orson be Orson. And Orson's not gonna be easy for you. But that's the exchange of genius, is what we're discovering now as we get older as a society, as a country, when we delve into mental health stuff, when we look at analyze characteristics and we have people who write and do theses and do these studies, like genius people who are geniuses cannot function in a normal society for the most part because they don't subscribe to the normal behavior patterns of those of us who aren't geniuses right it's just not within them they don't see the world the same way it caught like you can study bobby fisher as a perfect right. example bobby fisher was an incredible genius at chess one of the most difficult games to be a genius at and eventually he became you know against against judaism against zionism he just became this incredibly crazy person and turned on just about everyone who had ever been nice to him uh, throughout his entire life, claiming that they had been using him for all these things. And, you know, he had been a, a vehicle of the government, like the American government was doing these. So he became this and because they don't see the world the same way. And so to ask, unfortunately, Wells had to be domesticated. He was like this wild animal that was eventually dis- d- domesticated. It was this big, huge bull in the pen. Well, I'd say he was never domesticated. That's the problem. Well, <laughs> I would disagree with you. I would say that he got domesticated as he got older because he couldn't fight anymore. Well, that, that and he started showing up on Merv Griffin and he started showing up on these things and doing these Paul Mazan commercials. That's domestication, man. When you don't have the pride to say no. But you know why he was doing those things. Well, of course, to fund other films. To fund his films. Yeah, but that's also... I mean, it, it's, it's a sad, it's a sad, sad story. Yes. You agree. know, um, people did say about, which I always love, and I think it's probably true, that he was the greatest dinner guest of all time. Yes, I'm sure. The, there's no one more fascinating yeah. and interesting. He's the best storyteller. And he was, you know, the fact that he was obviously obsessed with Don Quixote anyway. Yeah. Yeah. He's Don Quixote. Yeah. He's always tilting at windmills. He always is making mistakes. He always is misunderstanding what he should be doing. Yeah. And he's still always determined in this sort of sad, you know, myth of Sisyphus way yeah. to make these films. I mean, the guy was making movies in his garage. Yeah. Right before he died. Right. You know, other side of the wind. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it's it's. He's, he's endlessly compelling. And, and what's interesting, too, so about, about Touch of Evil, so he comes in to play the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And he rewrites the script. And Charlton Heston is still the main character of the movie. Yes. It is, but, it, but unlike any other movie I can think of, it's Quinlan's story. Mm-hmm. So the, the story is not the main character. This is what I was saying at the beginning of the podcast. Wells, you can see Wells' deconstruction of himself in his films. You can see it in Citizen Absolutely. Kane. I was just thinking the same thing. Yeah, and you can see it here in Touch of Evil very much so. You see the deconstruction of this once proud man, this once this man who was so good at what he did, being exposed for the tricks that he was pulling to achieve this status. It's him. That's as, as, so on. You said that so well. It's, it's what it is. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. one of the things people say about Citizen Kane is it's obviously a loosely based on William Randolph Hearst. Right. But if you look at Hearst, he is not nearly so interesting as no, Foster Kane. Not at all. Yeah. The yeah. personality is Wells. Yes. That's, it's this 
brilliant, complicated, arrogant, mm -hmm. contradictory, self-destructive. That's Wells. Yes. And I think you're absolutely right is that he's this, here's Quinlan who gets introduced as this great genius mm -hmm. who is destroying himself physically, which is what the future of Wells actually is, which yes. is sort of disturbing. And that what we discover is that his genius was in fact a trick. Yes. That he's there. You're exposing the genius to be a charlatan. And in the end, Wells is largely a charlatan. And I think that's what he always knew about himself, man. And I think that's what I really, and that's what I've always like you, as you get older, you understand you, that's what I believe now a hundred percent is that he knew, which is why that, that those kind of portrayals of him, of, of the, of the people that he portrayed, he portrayed really well on film have that, you know, they all have their tricks. They all have these things that people need that, that are hiding from everybody that they know they're not what people think they are. Right. And as you watch Kane, as you watch touch of evil and even the stranger, when he plays that guy, like he's supposed to be something else, right. but he's actually a Nazi war criminal. Right. You know, these things are that, so he, he uh, he he is never better than when he's portraying those parts. But the fact that he wrote those things, those that's him. That's him writing about himself, whether he consciously knows he's doing it or not. It's his way of like almost doing a mea culpa for his entire existence. And I think that's why those films resonate so so powerfully with me because I can recognize that and understand it. And I'm like, oh man, that makes him even more of a genius because he's so ge smart that he hid that within his films, you know? It's absolutely true. Uh, one thing I think we should restate because for those of you who haven't seen it, yeah. and I don't know why you're listening to this. <laughs> yes, far, God love you for sticking through it. Because it, well, a lot of this might have been very confusing. <laughs> I don't want to go, as we talked about genius and yeah. depth and camera angles and all these things, I don't want you to get the impression that this isn't a enjoyable movie no it really is this is a thrilling exciting fast-paced this is an accessible film mm -hmm. um uh, th this is a movie that uh you should watch and i promise you you're going to enjoy yeah and then you're going to watch it again and again and again and you'll find more things each time absolutely but it isn't like some boring intellectual thing no no absolutely not it's very fast-paced it's very unsettling the whole time you're excited by the characters that are involved and the filmmaking itself if you're a filmmaking student if you're a lover of films and you haven't seen this film do yourself a favor and do and watch it and if you haven't seen it in a long time after you listen to us watch it again and i guarantee you'll get something else out of it because it is a lesson in filmmaking itself you know from the script to the characters to the acting to the costume design to the sound design to the angles to the cinematography to the direction it's all a lesson in filmmaking absolutely and when you do watch it when yep. you do watch it we'd love to hear your comments absolutely you comment on our facebook page which is the cinephiles and uh we'd also hear your suggestions for future films so if there's something you want to hear me and john dig into please let us know on the facebook page yep. uh and uh if you want to reach me you can reach me at sr morris on twitter you can uh read my blog at uh, which is a civilvoice.com. Uh, and where can they reach you, John? Yes, uh, you can always reach me at the Roca says R O C H A. Uh, you can see all the shows I'm hosting, co hosting, like this show or the shows I'm a guest on. And uh, I'm always communicating with the fans. So if there are films that you're discovering or films that you're discovering because you've listened to us, I'd love to hear from you and be able to talk back with you on Twitter or on Instagram. Uh, yeah. All right. Thanks for tuning into the Cinephiles. Cinephiles.